This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to this brand new season of The Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. This season, we'll be bringing you even more of Bishop Curry's conversations with faith leaders, authors, and thinkers who are committed to following the way of Jesus in the world today. We'll hear stories and lessons and reflect about how each of us can grow closer to God in our daily lives, framed by the seven practices of the way of love, turning, learning, praying, worshiping, blessing, going, and resting. When we decide to prioritize um, neighbor, dignity, humanity, community, interestingly, that sort of faith worldview and then building a life around that perspective actually does increase our own blessing. In this episode, Bishop Perry sits down with Jen Hatmaker, faith leader, author, speaker, blogger, and television presenter, to discover how, among many changes, opportunities, and setbacks, she and her family have paused, listened, and reoriented themselves again and again toward Jesus and his way of love. We'll hear about her shift from a self-centered to an other-centered faith, and how one unconventional fast deeply impacted her life. Jen Hatmaker, thank you and welcome to The Way of Love. Well, this is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to meet you. This is really cool. I've got you, you got to tell us a little bit about yourself because I think people are just going to fall in love with you when you do. Okay, well, that's got to be at least 50% true, so I'm going to take that much <laughs> from you. Well, let's see. I live in Austin, Texas uh-huh. with my family, and uh, my husband and I have been in full-time church work our whole adult lives, and church planners. And uh, we have five kids, which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. We have two in college and two in high school and one in middle. Any dogs or cats? Yes, of course. I mean, we just try to make our life as chaotic as possible. Um, And so we have a very old, decrepit dog named Ladybird. Um, And then for a while here, we had a bunch of chickens. So, you know, I don't recommend that. I really don't. I really don't. Um, And so then I also have a ministry and I'm a, I'm an, I'm a, author and a speaker and a teacher and serve women just kind of all over the place and host a podcast. And it's just a really great life full of vibrant people and interesting conversations. And I think we're all just aiming kind of toward the same North Star. But you've had an, a remarkable life and a remarkable faith journey, but I have to, would you tell everybody how you met your husband? I read about that. So my husband, bless him, we went to the same college. We went to Oklahoma Baptist University, just outside Uh of Oklahoma City. And he was a couple of years ahead of me. And I was a freshman. And apparently he had... I guess spotted me. I mean, this is, sounds like, sounds like a predator, but yeah, he had <laughs> yes, he spotted me on campus and made it his mission to to cross my path as often as possible. Well, I, frankly, I had no idea he was doing this. Apparently, he can recount all these times that he said something to me or happened to be getting his mail at the same time. I don't remember any of it, but um, at one point, he um, came up and got a fork 
at the same time I was getting my fork in the cafeteria. He's like, I already had a fork. Um, and so eventually his schemes worked and we, um, started dating my freshman year in college and we have been together ever since we just next week, we hit our 26th (laughs) wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Wow. Wow. I love it. That's blessed stalk. It is. It is. We were just two kids who got married. We were 19 and 21, if you can even believe it. Believe it. So now that I have a 19 and a 21-year-old myself, two of my kids are those ages, I look at them and think, if you come home and tell me that you are going to get married, you are in for a world of hurt. You are just babies. So (laughs) I can't believe it. it. It worked out, and we made it, and here we are. You and your husband's meeting and journey is remarkable, but your journey of faith is pretty remarkable, too. But tell us. I feel it's almost an embarrassment of riches, the spiritual investment in my life. My dad was a pastor, but kind of a rogue pastor, if you will. I I would put him way on the fringes of things. Um, And so we were raised in a really fun and rowdy home. But church and faith were just central. I, I did not even know there was an alternative. And so I was kind of raised by the church and the church fathers and mothers who invested in me. And um, and so I said I wasn't going to marry a pastor, but of course I did that. And, and then we just steered the ship right into full-time ministry. So my husband was a pastor. Um, for years with students and then with adults. Um, and then ultimately we became church planners and, um, and he was a lead pastor and, um, and then my, my faith just deepened and developed. And then I realized, um, in my very late twenties and early thirties that I had my own calling that I was set apart for um, for ministry and set apart for a really specific kind of work that God was calling me toward. And so um, that began what was a real surprise move for me. I was a teacher. So I, that wasn't, I didn't set out to become a pastor of any kind. And yet here's where I am. And, and it has been a beautiful journey, definitely a hard one. Um, you know, I, I tell people sometimes young people who speak to me, I'm like, well, if there's anything else you can do besides ministry, try that first. And then let's see what's, what's left. Um, and then maybe come in here. If this is what you absolutely have to do, if you cannot help yourself, then come to ministry. Along the way, what were some surprises? Well, that's a great question. That's a really great question. I think I knew some of the obvious built-in costs to ministry because my dad was a pastor. So Uh I grew up as a staff kid. I knew about church. I knew about kind of behind the curtain stuff. I knew uh, sort of the baked in criticism and challenges that come with church ministry. But I think what surprised me, what really surprised me was how much my own personal faith was going to evolve. Uh, I grew up in one real specifically defined faith tradition. I grew up Southern Baptist and it's all I knew. It was all, those are the only leaders I knew, the only um, teaching I'd ever sat under, the only interpretations I had ever heard. And so it took me by surprise to become a grown up who began taking my faith very seriously as mine, not my parents, um, you know, not my denominations, but mine and realize how how radically Jesus was going to challenge some of my own systems and some of my own beliefs and my own interpretations and the way ultimately that I was going to not just 
lead, but the way I was going to live. And so I still, if you could have gone back, if I could go back and tell my 20 year old self where I was going to be today, I wouldn't have believed it for a million dollars. And so it's surprising how God can change us all the time. Constant, constant resurrection. What have some of that, what's some of that evolution, what does that look like? What are some examples? I would say that when I was growing up, my faith felt very individualistic. That's just the way I came to understand Uh, God, that this is about me and God. We kind of have our own situation. Um, And and, and essentially, my relationship with him was, how was this going to affect me? What was it about my life? And if if I considered anybody else in the world, it was really only from an evangelic perspective evangelical perspective, like how I would, I saw myself as some sort of, um, conversion agent in the world, you know, so I didn't necessarily care for anybody's dignity or, or justice or equality, but more just their salvation. That's just the way I was raised. We were raised on apologetics and I thought that was my chief goal. Um, and so as a grown up, um, really what Jesus captured me for was for my neighbor, um, and, and then of course, in the most devastating way, he peeled back all the layers and pulled off all the blinders on the, the levels of systemic injustice that I had been swimming in my whole life. Um, and so I had to really learn, um, what it looked like to see, um, white supremacy in action in the world, not just in the world, but in the church. Um, I had to learn what it felt like in the world to be at the receiving end of, of homophobia, um, of poverty, um, of being on the low end of a, an abusive power system. And so I would call that a steep learning curve, um, and it has radically changed my trajectory. Jen, how did you, um, you know, because I suspect that for any of us, and I, and I just resonate with your evolution, I really do, with that, that development. I think one of the great fears for uh, people of faith is that if you grow, that means yeah. change. And, and if change is involved in dev- evolution, development, whatever the right word is for that, then the risk is, will the change include me mm, losing my yeah, faith? Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. How did you navigate yeah, that? Um, you know, that's that was um, probably one of the key criticisms that I received, uh, which is, of course, sort of packaged as this idea of it being a slippery slope, right? That if you begin to ask yes. new questions yes. or hard questions, or you begin to press on some of the forms, um, that really rattles the cages of the status quo. I get it. I mean, we would much rather just keep the system as is, um, keep the power brokers as they are. And so I definitely understand the challenge to the authority um, and where sort of that fear response comes from. Um, but my friend Sarah Bessie says, if you get if you get 20, 40 years down the road and your faith hasn't evolved at all, you're doing it wrong, right? Because God, God, God right. doesn't change, but hopefully we do. You know, I I exactly. surely hope yes. that I do not have the same um, spiritual maturity that I had 20 years ago. And I hope 20 years from now, I'll look back and marvel at what I didn't know now. And so I think what's been so instructive to me when I uh, hope to 
receive that um, that question with a lot of generosity of spirit is that Jesus's um, the story that he told about wineskins has been so instructive for me on my sort of faith evolution, which is that no matter what, the wine is good. It's been good generation to generation. It will last. It is eternal. But the wineskins change. They reach a point where they have stretched as far as they can go. They are brittle. They are unable to expand one more millimeter. And thus, sometimes we have to reimagine the forms. We have to reimagine the container, but the wine is unchanged. And so that's how I imagine Uh. um, a growing faith. And so I don't see it at all as a scary change. I see it as maturity. I see it as asking better questions um, and hopefully coming into a fuller knowledge of Jesus. That's wonderful. You know, actually what you just described is sort of the evolution, if you will, of the first followers of Jesus. If you look at Simon Peter at the very beginning and even at the crucifixion, it's not exactly the same Simon Peter who eventually tradition says would eventually sacrifice his life. That's right. That's right. And that that's so it's instructive and encouraging. I, I often wish that, um, that modern believers um, could adopt some of the posture of the early believers and even the way that the Jewish people understood faith, that, that evolution was expected and growth was anticipated and it wasn't seen as a threat or it wasn't seen as unfaithful. It was seen as a normal, natural process. And so I hope to really teach my community that, that it is okay to ask good questions. What I've discovered is we can press really, really hard on the gospel and it will hold. So we have nothing to be afraid of. That's right. That's right. I used to tell folk, if God handled Moses and Pharaoh. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's funny when I was a kid, when I was probably when I was 16, um, I, I remember sort of pretty much thinking my father was an idiot. And now that I'm 66, I think he was a genius. I don't think my father changed, but I did. (laughs) Also, I'm hanging on to that because I got a 16-year-old who thinks I don't know anything about Do you really? So maybe one day I will become a fascinating genius to these children. You will become a super mom, believe me. (laughs) Throughout this week, take time to think about your own faith journey. Has your faith grown or evolved over the last 5, 10, or 20 years? What questions are you wrestling with now? How do you, like Jen, turn back toward Jesus? Don't go anywhere. We'll hear more from Jen and Bishop Curry following this message from our sponsor. What nurtures and sustains you? And I know that it's the Lord, but how do you access him? How do you feed your spirit? How do you let the spirit of God feed your spirit? Yeah. What do you do practically? What are practices that are part of your life? I It's interesting to think that through over the course of my 
life in Christ because I have seen that he sort of woos me and nourishes me and nurtures me and instructs me differently in different seasons of my life, which I love that about him that, um, you know, there's just a season where God absolutely met me and moved me through my mind. And so, um, I found great joy in study and in learning. And my mind was this amazing portal to my heart. And I'm thankful that God met me like that when he did and how he did right now in this season of my life. Um, I would say that the way that I experienced Jesus right now in his fullest, in his prime, um, in the, the ways in which I believe he exists to change the world right now, it's through people. So I have been so challenged and encouraged and inspired by Jesus in other people recently. That is where I am finding him. And I am discovering that this guy has been at work and far outside of my experience, far outside of my worldview, um, far outside of my perspective, as I've been able to see him at work in other people and watch their generosity unfold and their compassion, their gifts sort of unleash in the world. It has increased my faith because I realize okay, this is a pretty big God we have here. Uh, we have tried very, very deeply to package him nicely and, and it's to something we can export easily. Uh, but frankly, he is a big, wild, mysterious God doing things far outside of our view. And that, for me, is a faith builder right now. Uh, oh, wow. Well, tell me a little bit about, now you've written some books. I've written a few. Yeah, well, tell us about, the, I know one's called For the Love. Yes. Yeah. I, well, first of all, nobody's more surprised than me that I write books and somebody publishes them. So first of all, shock. And so I, I, I don't know what to say, except that that was a place that was undeniably God's movement in my life that plucked me right out of the sort of space. I was the career space I was uh-huh. and moved me into that. And so it's what, it's my greatest joy and I love doing it. And so I write primarily for women, but not entirely. Um, and just like my faith journey, my publishing journey has also arced and I can see, Oh, I wrote that in that season. Um, I wrote this kind of book in that season and they all matter. Um, but they're all different. So uh, a lot of my writing is for women and I very deeply believe in the power of women in their lives and souls, in their families, in their church communities, in their neighborhoods and cities as really important agents of change right now in the world. I I have this vision for women unleashed in the world in a liberated, um, set on fire, free, courageous um, women in my world. They have changed my life and been some yeah. of my greatest teachers. And so, uh, so that's what I do. And also, I like to be funny. So a lot of it is absurd. Um, <laughs> and I keep trying to tamp that down, but I find it impossible to do so. <laughs> it's you. You gotta be you. It's me. I gotta yeah. be me. Yeah. I'd say the Lord called you. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I got to ask you something. This is going to be an out of the blue question. Okay. But you know that, you know, men and women are, you know, Mars and Venus and all that sure. kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and guys and religion and faith, um, it, it takes a little extra work. It's not exact. It's the same, the same Jesus and all that. Sure. But, but reaching them, what are some words that you have as a woman mm. for men? My husband um, 
is as we speak, uh, he, he sort of manages a huge, like 2000 acre hunting lease here in Texas and Uh in hunting season, which is right now, he Uh takes out, these are like big game hunts. I don't really know what this is. I'm not a hunter, but I married one, but he takes out these um, men who Uh are foster dads. And so they spend a whole lot of their energy um, doing a lot of heavy lifting for their families and for their kids. So he takes them out as kind of like a, a bit of a gift. Anyway, I was talking to him this morning and he was, I was asking him, how's it going? And he said, you know, last night we, and there's maybe six or eight of them, you know, he said, we sat around the fire and we ended up talking for three hours. And he said, these men are just pouring their hearts out and finding the space of vulnerability. And I just reminded that men are tender too. And men have feelings too, that matter and count. Um, and men have questions too, and they have permission to be vulnerable and to be transparent and to not always have the answers. It's just that our culture doesn't really create that kind of space for men. Um, And so I think what, what I discover in ministry is that I think men suffer a lot in silence because they don't have the community or the permission um, to, to lean into deep, um, spaces of faith, like women just automatically do, you know, we don't ask for that permission. We just, we go all in and we share. It's just kind of by, we, we've all, our community has been built like that. And so I just would love for men to know that, um, the things in your life that are full of either sorrow or pain or confusion or, or tenderness or fragility, um, or that are in deep need of recovery and redemption, you're just not alone. Um, there's something wrong with you. You're, that doesn't make you less of a man that doesn't make you weak um that 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 communicates nothing about your character except that you're a human person and so i hope i hope to pass off a faith to my sons and then ultimately um their sons that is a little bit of a wider table um, for people to come to from all walks of life where we're, none of us are pigeonholed until the, to these labels that are over us, these containers um, that we've been asked to fill in a very specific way, but rather we can be very human together in every way that that means, both in leadership and authority and also in vulnerability and transparency. So I hope that for men of faith and really men everywhere. Wow. What now? All right, now this is I'm not. This isn't a trick question, um, okay. but you know we're in. Uh, I don't know when this podcast will actually air, but sure. it almost doesn't matter because we're we're taping it in a political season that's beginning. That's right. Um, and and even after the the election next year of of the presidential election, all the other elections, we'll still be in a political season and. And actually, more importantly, I think in the United States anyway, we'll be in a time um, where there just seems to be real division of people. Yes, there is. And I'm not asking a partisan political mm-hmm. question, but I, I mean, you as a pastor, as a as a deeply devout follower of Jesus, um, I mean, what can you say to us um, in this moment of our national despair? Yes, gosh, that's such a good way to put it. And I, I share your concern. I share that sense of such, such polarized spaces. And and so for me, um, I, I throw my 
my weight in here quite a bit. And it's not because I see a great deal of the things in front of us in a partisan way. I see them as, as moral. I see them as these are, this is the responsibility of the church to care deeply for our neighbor, to call out um, systems of inequity and, and injustice. And it is ours to care in that way. This is, this is, these are our marching orders. This isn't ambiguous to me at all. Um, I think, I think the way of life that Jesus outlined, um, for people of God is crystal clear, um, in terms of, um, loving our neighbors and serving our communities. And so I, um, I hope that I hope to lead people in such a way that when we consider something as fundamental as our vote, that we see this as an act of, of faith, honestly, um, and that, the way that we vote isn't a, just a strictly partisan line, which is just a, boy, what a terrible fault line that has created inside the Christian faith, um, where now it seems like if you choose one label, then you need to attach yourself automatically to a political label. Uh, I, that's just disastrous, disastrous for the longevity of faith and and certainly for the next generation who is looking at this with great cynicism, as, we're, mm-hmm. as well they should. Um, but yeah. rather, I hope that we cast our vote as people of faith who say, um, what would it look like if I voted for my neighbor? And I think that's a great way to think about mm. it. Like, not just what would serve me, what mm-hmm. would keep me safe, secure, and wealthy, if that's really the grid that we're looking through, but rather what would serve my neighbor? What would serve my community? Um, what would create a more equal world? What would create a more just system? Um, and so that is how I see it. And in the meantime, <laughs> but in the meantime, I think the best we can do right now is pull up chairs around the table with people who um, aren't just strictly um, like we are. Um, that don't yeah, share necessarily yes. all of our yes. ideas or opinions or values, and so um, I think we have a lot to learn from each other. Still, I think there's a I think there's a real place for listening. That seems to be a lost art, um, and listening with a sense of I'm going to assign positive intent to you. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're doing the best you can um, and that you are not intending to cause harm, um, that this is the way that you understand it. And inside that framework, tell me more about your story. Um, tell me more about your perspective. I think we have a lot of ga- ground to gain um, and that a lot of possibility exists within that sort of like civic dialogue. And I would love to see that return because right now it is such an angry partisan screaming mess um that i do wonder how we're going to find our way out of it yes i think i think you're you're right on i think you're right on Mm -hmm. let you know and part of me wonders i mean part of me um is aware that that you know if you look at jesus as um both as teaching and actually embodying love Hmm. um it his is an unselfish love it's, it's, and sacrificial. That's right. Um, and that that's the nature. I mean, that's not about beating up on yourself or anything like that, but that's, that's about seeking the good and welfare of the neighbor, of the other, of others, as well as, you know, blessings for yourself too. But that, that's, that is a different way of framing life than the way we're culturally taught to live. That's right. You know, look out for number one used to be a slogan when I was a kid. Sure. Yeah, and and it, I don't hear the slogan, but the way that way of thinking yeah. is prevalent. Yeah, that's right. 
when we decide um, to prioritize um, neighbor, dignity, humanity, community, interestingly, that that sort of faith worldview and then building a life around that perspective actually does increase our own blessing. It, it's just a very strange paradox, one of many that Jesus handed to us. Um, but really, like he said, you know, the last will be first. And so voluntarily taking um, a lower place, voluntarily um, setting aside our own preferences for somebody else, strangely enough, increases our faith, increases our capacity, increases our joy and our peace. And so um, I do believe this is the path into abundant life. It just doesn't look like what the world is selling. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You just, yeah, uh, 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 a minute ago, they gave me the five-minute note uh, yes. telling me we have five minutes. But a few minutes before that, they gave me a seven-minute note. Okay. And I remember you have a book called Seven. I do. That was a great segue. Good job, Bishop. That was really, really well done. Uh, I do. I do. My family and I did this experiment. We A few years ago, we were like, man, I think we just, I think we're just drowning in excess and creative materialism and consumerism. I don't know how to get out of it. Like this is just the waters we swim in. And so we did a project, kind of a social experiment called seven. And we identified seven areas where we thought we were just overindulgent. And we spent one month on each. So it was like food, clothes, spending, waste, um, possessions, media and technology, stress. So we took each one of those spent a month on it and only gave ourselves seven options. So like, for example, we only ate the same seven foods for a month. We wore the same seven pieces of clothes for a month. We, um, we only spent money in seven places for a month. We gave away Are seven things a day that we owned for a month, et cetera. And we wow. were like, I just wonder what God could do with this. And we, we approached it in the spirit of a fast, um, uh-huh. and it changed our lives just absolutely like radically changed our lives as you can imagine. Yeah. What a way of, that's a way of fasting. Yeah. That's what we thought. Like a temporary I mean, that's a holistic way of fasting. Yes, exactly. A very holistic systemic communal way of fasting and just saying, okay, God, we're going to give you a little space. We're going to free up some space birth out of restraint, um, abstinence. What can you do with it? Boy, he really, really taught us and led us during that season. Can you think of an example of just one, just just one thing that just stood out that spoke to you, or that's a memory? Or oh what? man, I- uh, one of the months that for me at the time was the most revolutionary was when we tackled the idea of waste. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, at the time, I was just a very much a mindless consumer, living very heavy on this earth, um, not really considering the earth at all as God's creation and our sister. Um, and so we just consumed, consumed. And so uh, we adopted seven practices, um, to live in a way that cares for the earth, like the stewards we were supposedly meant to be. Um, so deep, you know, themes of, um, 
um, you know, recycling and all, all that, the whole thing, the, we did it all. Um, and a lack of sort of waste consumerism there. And it, that for us has produced the most permanent um, changes in our life that, because once you kind of know that, once you sort of get a real look at your carbon footprint, once you start paying attention to the ways that we are sort of ravaging and pillaging the earth and its, and its effects, you can't unknow it. Um, and so, boy, that was a real eye-opening month and uh, we've lived differently ever since oh my lord yeah that seventh that reminds me of that you know it's like the bible the seventh day when god rested yeah and god saw all that he had made and behold it was very good yes jen hatmaker you are one of god's very good creations Thank and what you. a blessing you are to us what a kind Thank thing you. to say it's my honor to be here and meet you today well, God love you and God bless you. And thank, thank you, you, Bishop. So delighted to meet you. Just, I'm just, you can count on my prayers and my love and my support for all your important work in the world. It has meant so very oh. much to so many of us. And we are learning from you and we are listening and we are watching. I thank you for your prophetic leadership in the world right now. It matters. And you are a trusted voice. And I'm just telling you that your leadership, your witness, it increases my faith and I'm grateful. Well, you just increased mine in the last 20, 30 minutes, however long we've been talking. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, you are too. Well, that's a wrap on this first episode of season three of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. If you'd like to learn more about Jen Hatmaker, including her new book, Fears, Free and Full of Fire, visit jenhatmaker.com. You can discover more about Bishop Curry and the way of love, including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast, and would especially love it if you rate and review it or share with a friend. If you'd like to contribute music, a prayer, or feedback, write us at wayoflove@episcopalchurch.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sandy Milian, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.